Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. Today's guest is Dr. David Lesh. Dr. Lesh is a San Antonio local, former professional athlete. Um, I think Harvard PhD, right? Harvard PhD. I, I want to say Yale just to mess with you. Yeah. He's a Middle East expert. He's a professor at Trinity. He's one of my good friends. Um, we have him on here today to talk about a few things, which the plan was always to have you on talk about Middle East. But now I think we get to talk about sort of, you know, the international effect of this. I still want to talk Middle East. I still want to talk Syria. Um, but first, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I've started with everybody the same way. I want to just go through some general information. First, important to me, do you have any pets? No. I used to have two. One good one, one bad one. What were they? Dogs. All right. <laughs> why, why none now? Because I've, I've been there, done that. Okay. You know, we have, we have actually good furniture now. We don't want to get these things bitten or peed on or anything else. This so. is exactly what I expect your response to be. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know what your favorite restaurant is right now. So that one's marked off the list. What's and, your and, and, and what do you know about that restaurant? That it has good food. And there's one other thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't know right now. That's okay. You just need to look at the menu. Oh, next they have, time they yes. have it to go. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. So I will let you do that. So Dr. Lesh has, uh, a, no, 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 it's not for me. It's, it's for you to mention it. So I look humble. So I look named humble. after him. A dish named after me. At J Prime. At J Prime. I can't imagine it's what it's called. Called uh, uh, Lesh Lobster or Lesh Lagostino. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's, a, it's a dish I found at a restaurant in Toronto. I brought it to the manager there. He loved it and he honored me because I spent a lot of money there <laughs> to uh, name the, uh, the dish after me. Very it's, manly it's, dish. It is a very manly dish, especially uh, when you dip it. You know. So, other than J Prime, what's your favorite place to eat in town? J Prime. Do you ever? Did you eat, mention J Prime? Do you ever eat like the locals eat? Maybe a taqueria <laughs> or a burger joint. What are those? Yeah, I don't know. I don't okay. know. Perry's maybe. Perry's. <laughs> <laughs> Downtown maybe Bohannon's. You know. Okay. Well, right. this is this is going about where it should go. Okay. okay um, I, I ask everybody this, and I'm going to because I think everybody's got this. You know, if you come to San Antonio, you have to do this one thing. What is your hidden gem in San Antonio that you tell visitors they've got to go see? Uh, J Prime. <laughs> it's going nowhere. You're, you regret nowhere having fast. you regret having me on now. Uh, hidden gem. It used to be the Liberty Bar okay. when it was at its uh, other location. I mean, before I brought anybody anywhere from out of town, and it used to be on uh, where the Pearl is now. That you know house I was leaning yeah. over and warped and everything. It was a fantastic place, and now it's on the south side. But that used to be the unique experience. Other than that, right now. It's just, I don't know, there's something called the Alamo. Okay. Is that, yeah. is that something that Yesterday's people go to? Yesterday's guest said the Esquire Bar. The Esquire Bar. Oh, maybe the 1919 Bar, okay. which is pretty good. Yeah. Southtown. I love these old, you know, uh, iconic places. And Liberty bar, bar is in Southtown now, not Southside. Did I say it's outside? You did. I mean, you do live in Stone Oak. So well, I it is. is I, do you need a passport to get down there? Pro you probably do. Yeah, yeah, I probably do. Okay. All right. So this is going great. So next... Uh, <laughs> What are you involved with outside of work? And, and usually we're kind of asking, are you involved with any nonprofits? Uh, I'm involved in a number of them, uh, a number of uh, conflict resolution uh, NGOs, international NGOs. One that I'm, I'm very proud of and which I'm uh, very much engaged currently is an is a organization called Cure Violence uh, based in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Based in Washington, D.C. And <laughs> you see, you should never do this with a friend. I don't even know what's You should funny never now. do this with a friend. Okay, let's now, keep ba going. Yeah, based in Washington, D.C. And what it does. <laughs> what it does. <laughs> I think this is part of the, this is the, the you need shutdown to coming. This is when you need to edit out. Cabin now, fever kicking yeah, in. Exactly. Now, Cure Violence, uh, it was rated by whoever rates these things, the number one conflict resolution or violence prevention uh, NGO in the world, and it's number nine overall. And what it is, and it's, it's apropos of what's going on in the world today. <laughs> <laughs> what 
This isn't getting edited out. This is, this too, is good. This is Keep gold. it going. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know what? We need levity yeah. in this world today. We do. I do. <laughs> Never, ever. It, it, the audience, if you could see this, he's making faces at me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, going back to Cure Violence, um, it's uh, a world-renowned uh, epidemiologist who used to work on Ebola and HIV in Africa. He wants to bring uh, a health solution to violence. In other words, uh, treat violence as an epidemic. And how do we deal with that epidemics? We contain it, we find vaccines, antibodies, things of this nature. And so he developed this model for uh, interrupting violence uh, at the local level, in prisons, uh, to gang violence in, in cities, to cartel violence. And finally, where I become involved, uh, more specifically to violence in terms of war, particularly right now we have operations in Syria. And what the organization does is it trains local community leaders in the areas where there's a lot of violence, and uh, they train them as interrupters in order to uh, enact compromise, in order to talk to various people that may be uh, you know, on the verge of conflict to try to you know, uh, uh, get them down from, from that uh, perch. Uh, and it's worked beautifully. I mean, uh, a scientific approach to ending a violence. scientific approach to ending or curtailing violence and and uh, murders and so forth uh, uh, in a number of cities in which they are involved have gone down precipitously by forty to sixty percent internationally or more of an American based. It started American in domestic in New York, Chicago, Dallas, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore. And um, it's been very, very successful. And they don't go to the whole city. Usually they start out in, obviously, the various neighborhoods where there's a high incidence of, of crime. And, uh, and then from there, they started to go internationally. They, they go into Central and South America and, and deal with cartel situations where there's a high incidence of violence. And, of course, as I just said, they've, they've expanded into the Middle East. They're in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they are in Iraq, uh, a certain degree, and... and uh, uh, the last year or so, we've been going into Syria, into government-controlled as well as opposition-controlled areas to train people. Because uh, that's, you know, in a, in a situation such as Syria, where eight years of civil war, you know, the war will end, and in effect, in some ways, it has ended. And as uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, one of the top conflict resolution specialists in the world said to me one time, he said, when the conflict ends, or when the war ends, that's when the conflict begins because you have all of these animosities, you have all of this ven you know, vengeful attitudes, all of these things you have to deal with. You have the fracturing of society, uh, economic uh, dislocation, all of these things. And so uh, all of these, these triggers for potential violence. And so you know, we come in, or Cure Violence comes in, and, and identifies those triggers and help, help prevent them from being pulled. And if they are pulled, uh, prevent it from getting worse. And so I'm, in fact, uh, <clears throat> recently, uh, uh, we may try to get them into San Antonio, into right. some areas. And I've been in, in discussions with the, the city uh, to do that. Obviously, with what's going on right now, it's uh, in abeyance for the time being. Right. But at some point, uh, we may bring them into San Antonio. Well, we Antonio. had a big spike in, in, in violence there for a while, violent crime. Yeah, yep. yeah, particularly. Yeah. Is that sort of the impetus in getting them involved here? Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the key in all of these things is, uh, is funding. And, you know, will funding come from the city? Will it come from the state? Uh, how much is needed? And so forth and so on. So we're just in beginning discussions yeah. with that right now. Okay. Uh, any, do, you, do you have any sort of hobbies outside of what I know about? And come on, be careful here. So I know you play tennis. Play tennis. You were a major league baseball pitcher at one point. Uh, professional baseball. I was, never made the major leagues. I was the number one draft pick of the Dodgers and was in the minor leagues for a few years until a rotator cuff injury ended my, what otherwise would have been an illustrious career in the major leagues, I'm sure. You were a professional sure. baseball I'm a player. Profe I was okay. a professional right. baseball right. player. In fact, I used to be lots of things. <laughs> I was many, many things. I've heard you tell people that. I know. Uh -huh. yeah, I currently, uh, I, I play tennis, not as much as I used to because, you know, I've, I've, uh, I'm a young guy, as you know, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. but my knees are quite old because okay. of all the, you know, wear and tear that, that professional athletes go under. Yeah. Being a, uh, international diplomat is very tough on the well, body. Well, you walk a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, seriously, you walk back and forth, you Any shovel, shovel like diplomacy, you woodworking. Walk. I could see you being a crochet guy. I, I have a dream to play Christopher's dream on the piano as well as, uh, uh, Moonlight or Midnight Sonata by Beethoven. Ooh, I think it's Moonlight, or whatever. 
those are my two before the arthritis in the fingers set in. Can you play the piano? Play, I, I can play some piano. Okay. Do you want me to? Do you have a portable piano no. here? No. Oh, too bad. Too bad. But for our the listeners, for our listeners, been, he's he's yeah. pantomiming the piano right now. <laughs> and I'm putting myself in grave jeopardy by, by many, saying I can do. How that. many languages do you speak? Uh, Thirty-five. <laughs> Shut up. I can say yes in third. No. Um, I speak. Uh, uh, I speak Arabic, of course, uh, French, Spanish, somewhat, and a little bit of English. I'm trying to get better at English. Okay, this is one I need you to be real honest on. So whenever I was a younger man, I had a mullet. What was the terrible trend you followed when you were young? Good heavens. Yeah, I'm oh. sure there's a good one for you. Well, it, it's called the 1970s. That okay. was the terrible trend. So uh, fro? I was, uh, no, no, I wasn't a fro. I had long hair, and I was into disco. Oh, gross. and I had a, I had a oh, gross <laughs> dude. It's the worst. I, I had, uh, thanks. The last time I come on your show, I think hair metal would be better if you well, were telling me that. <laughs> well, I had a John Travolta okay. outfit from Saturday night fever. Big ABBA fan. Uh, no, okay. no, 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 no. I was, I was more Led Zeppelin and that sort of thing, but also like disco. Okay. Cause you know that you went clubbing, man. That's what you did. All right. Fair you enough. I, disco another time. Uh, what year did you move to San Antonio? 1992. Okay, you lived here straight ever since? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm are not asking my Are you asking my orientation? I feel like there's something behind me at this point. I, you yes, know, since I you're have. a Northsider, do, I don't do you even, do, yeah, I just want to let you know okay. that, that after we're done, and if you air all of this, and when it airs, if, if, if you air this, about 25 organizations are going to come after you, you know, for, for this and sue you for everything. I don't all, think they will. All of the, but you th see, the thing is, in this, in, this, in this type of situation, we need less PC and more levity. I agree. So, yeah. you know, everyone I mean, loosen up a little bit. And if we laugh a little we're bit. We're fixing to be joke. stuck at home for believe at least two me, weeks. Believe me, audience. Justin and I are being on our very best behavior. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm always on my best behavior. Yeah, right. <laughs> do you even go to any? I was going to ask you what's your favorite Fiesta event, but you're a Northsider. So do you even go to any Fiesta? And if you say is that on the South side? side? Yeah. <laughs> For you, it is. For you, it is. No, I, of course, when we moved here, uh, we went to all the events once. And uh, I went to uh, uh, Neosa, Niosa one time, and I had at least five beers spilled on me. Okay. Uh, do you, you go know, to Taste of the North Side now? It's right um, down the street from you. I went for a couple of years. Don't do any of that stuff right now. Okay. I'm kind of, and it's not just because of uh, coronavirus. I'm kind of not into crowds. Okay. Days. Yeah, I don't either. You know? Yeah. Um, last thing I want to ask you, which you should have some sort of insight to what is, what is something about Syrian people you think our listeners should know? I mean, we get a bad taste in our mouth about sure. every, everything Middle East because of the media, but yeah. what is one of those sort of, you know, small Americana type things about they're, those they're people? They're just people. They're just people. They're just like us. I mean, what they most want is to live in safety with their families, for their kids to grow up safely and have an opportunity to live, uh, their lives and have families themselves. And uh, I teach a, one of my courses I, I teach at uh, uh, Trinity University is called The History of Modern Syria. And one of the films I show, and this, these, whoever filmed it, I don't know how they got this access. It was during the, uh, I guess about 2000, I don't know, six or seven, it was filmed before the Civil War during Bashar al-Assad's uh, time in power. And all they did was film uh, kids at two different schools and interview them about their lives and I show it, you know, and these are high school students. So I show it to my college students, and they're amazed. It's like, wow, they're just like us. They, they play video games. They, they think about the, the guys and the gals and how to get together and, you know, around the parents and stuff like that. I and mean, all the same things that, that they think of. And so, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And, and that's why I'm such an advocate of uh, study abroad and, and foreign travel for students, uh, just to break some of the stereotypes they may have that, that uh, yeah, there, there are, uh, you know, uh, unique customs and, uh, unique histories that we need to pay attention to in different parts of the world. But, you know, bottom line, uh, they're really just people just like us. And, uh, uh, and to know how, how warm they are. I mean, the Arab peoples and peoples generally in the Middle East uh, are just so warm and giving. And, of course, we usually just hear about them through the filter of war and terrorism and these types of things. And so we make these generalized comments, which is, which is at the root of prejudice and uh, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, so many times when I go to cocktail parties and people find out what I do and, and somebody, you know, who's learned person, he'll say, what's wrong with them? You know? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with them. There's, they're, you know, 
there's something wrong with a few of them, just like sure. there's something wrong with a few of us, you know, including you. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was not pointing at you. I was pointing at the person who it's was okay. fictitious can, person who was it. asking me, but you it's too, skin. actually, yeah. you know? Um, so, uh, so that's what I try to convey, you know, to, uh, to students and, uh, you know, if they come out of my classes remembering the events and all that sort of stuff, that's fine. The people and places, but uh, the historical forces at work, the, the, um, and, and the uh, the knowledge that uh, you know they've been through a lot, as we have. Yeah. You know, every country has their moments of of conflict and uh, civil strife and and so forth. And and the Middle East, you know, we have to remember, you know, the United States. It took a hundred years to. Uh, uh, to gain some semblance of stability. And we're still dealing with uh, a lot of problems. We had our own, you know, devastating uh, civil war. And yet we were isolated from everybody. Sure. People in the Middle East, you know, at the epicenter of it all, you know, two-thirds of the world's known, known uh, oil supplies are located there. It's at a crossroads of civilization, a crossroads of trade. Uh, the Holy Land is there. Right. Uh, so there's so much attention there. Geostrategically, it's, it's quite important. With boundaries uh, that were made up. Yeah, just made up uh, by artificially yeah. by the mm-hmm. by the Europeans for the most part after World War One. So you know, one of the problems is is a lack of identity in in uh, in the Middle East uh, because of in many cases the these artificial boundaries. Uh, and you know, what are you? Are you uh, an Egyptian? Are you a Syrian? Are you a Sunni? Are you a Shiite? Are you a Christian? Uh, you know, are you Kurdish? Are you uh, Armenian? Are you Arab? And so all, there's, there are these multiple identities, and what happens is when there's a breakdown of the state, people tend to identify with their subnational identities. Uh, in some cases, even in this country, you know, sure. it's starting to do a little bit of that. And that's problematic. And, uh, and so they just haven't had the time or the breathing space to develop the stable political, economic, social, socioeconomic, uh, cultural institutions uh, that can breed stability well into the future. You know, it, it, Europe went through <laughs> how many? Sure. <laughs> went through all sorts of stuff. Uh, for two centuries. And uh, uh, so, you know, most of these countries are very, very young in the Middle East. And so they're still working through a lot of their problems. They're still going through the growing pains and of development. And uh, um, especially with all of these interested parties from the outside poking their hands in and, and manipulating things every now and then are just enough. And so, um, you know, and the Arab Spring can be seen as, as part of that. Uh, so it, it's a story that, that obviously, uh, you know, is still ongoing. Uh, it's maybe not even halfway through in terms of, you know, reaching a level of stability and economic well-being that people elsewhere in the world enjoy, uh, and that you know, and and that's just part of history and part of life over there. And and uh, they'll get to it. They're very proud people. They're very entrepreneurial people, uh, and uh, wonderful people overall. So and at uh, the heart of it, people are people. People are people. Yeah. One of the uh, <laughs> sort of eye-opening moments in my life, which everybody sort of has those, but. I read an article by a psychologist and she was doing trauma treatment for, I don't know if it was the forgotten women, the Boko Haram thing, but Mm -hmm. it was a large group of women who had been kidnapped and treated terribly over a long amount of time. The worst of the worst people could go through. And she was trying to provide therapy and doing a study, how people overcome trauma. And her deal at the end of the day was all they wanted to talk about was boys. She said, you know, really at the end of it, people even who'd gone through the worst trauma they're just people who want to live a normal life. And uh, right. it was always very eye-opening to me. That was her sort of take right. on it. But, but the, you know, a lot of people go through these national traumas. And one of the things with regard to civil war, such as that which has occurred and is occurring in Syria, is that it's not just the physical reconstruction of the country. It's the mental and emotional reconstruction of the country. And this is one of the things I'm working on with various groups is, uh, you know, trying to develop what are called these reconciliation panels which uh, were applied in South Africa and Northern Ireland to, to uh-huh. uh, great effect. Yeah. Uh, just bringing these people together, people that otherwise want to kill each other you know, through vengeance in the aftermath of uh, the Civil War and bringing them together to air their grievances, to air their shared suffering. And that's one of the things that people start to understand the suffering from the other side. They can relate to them in a better way than they would have otherwise by just seeing them as this enemy. So. And, and I want to go down that path, but let's sort of start. At some point... You went to Harvard and got your PhD in Middle East studies? Correct. Okay. Um, and then there's somewhere along the line, you befriended Bashar al-Assad. Yeah, it was over eHarmony. <laughs> well, I, I doubt that I would probably in, be no, his I, choice. I, I, I put in, uh, I wanted, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern authoritarian leader. 
And, you know, I was looking for a female, but there's not that many around. I mean, gold in my ear is no longer there. I feel like and you're going to so have a hard time ever seeing him so all again these, at this yeah, point. Yeah, probably. And yeah. so all these came up and, you know, Bashar was there and, you know, we started, uh, we became BFFs. Now. You send a flirt and then <laughs> next thing you know. <laughs> next thing you know, I'm visiting him in Syria. No, um, in all seriousness, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I've been going to Syria for some time. My first time there was 1989. I've been there some, you know, 35, 40 times and oftentimes stay there for months at a time. And um, uh, because I'm an academic, I uh, established a, n a very good network amongst, amongst uh, academics in Syria, University of Damascus, Aleppo University, places like that, uh, Al-Bath University and, and Homs. And um, so when Bashar al-Assad came to power after his father died in 2000, he brought a lot of academics into the government, which maybe is a sign of the apocalypse, but, <laughs> but a lot of people had hope for him. It's one of the, one of the reasons why a lot of people had hope because he didn't bring in apparatchiks, he didn't bring in, you know, heretics. Yeah, or or uh, nepotism or something. Sure. He brought in a lot of people who were good at what they do, at you know, at least on the surface, and and uh, many of them not even members of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, well, he brought in several of my friends into the cabinet. One friend in particular, one of my my dear dear friends, uh, who became minister of higher education, and it's through him in 2002. Bashar came to power in 2000 that I uh, contacted him and said, you know, Bashar has had a, a very different type of path toward the quote-unquote Middle East authoritarian sure. leader, the president of, of Syria, because uh, as, as you probably know, but many of our listeners may not know, is you know, he was a licensed ophthalmologist and pursuing a career in ophthalmology uh, when in 1994 his older brother, who was being groomed to take over for his father, died in a car accident. And Bashar al-Assad was in... Uh, uh, London at the time at the Western Eye Hospital, getting essentially board certified in ophthalmology, and they brought him back and then you know slowly uh, integrated him into the uh, ruling apparatus until by the time his father died in two thousand he was he was ready to to take over somewhat reluctantly though somewhat reluctantly um, but uh, and, and somewhat without a lot of power in the beginning because there was a lot of the so called old guard uh, under his father that were there that looked at him as kind of a last second replacement type of thing. So he didn't have legitimacy at first. He gained it. He worked hard for it over the next six years. And I saw him grow in that. Uh, I started seeing him, uh, uh, interviewing him for a book, uh, The New Line of Damascus, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Modern Syria, published by Yale University Press. In, uh, it came out in 2005. And I first started seeing him for that. And that's what, when I asked my friend, uh, I asked him, so I want to do a biography on him. And his within the context of modern Syria, because he has such a unique background, uh, other than the, you know, like the Saddam Husseins or Muammar Gaddafi's or even his father, Hafez al-Assad. And, um, uh, which is why many people hoped he would be different. Um, and so uh, uh, two years after, almost to the day that I made my inquiry, in 2004, the uh, uh, Syrian ambassador to Washington, who was a good friend of mine, who was an academic, not a member of the Ba'ath Party, he called me up and he said, David, it's on. And by that time, I'd basically forgotten about it. I said, yeah. what's on? He goes, no, the president wants to see you to, to, uh, help, uh, with this book, you know? And so I went and I saw him and, and, uh, the first time I, I saw him, you know, after the pleasantries were exchanged, I explained, you know, what I want to do. You know, I said two things. One, I'm not an apologist for Syria. I'm going to criticize you in this book. And he goes, that's fine. I understand that. Uh, but cause I've read your other stuff that you've done and, uh, my father always thought you were fair and, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, you're fair, even though you do criticize us. And then the second thing I, I said was, you know, the biggest, uh, biggest uh, mistake you made, uh, Mr. President, when you came to power and he goes, you know what? I go, well, you made it known that you like Phil Collins music <laughs> and he just like laughed. Well, he, he, kind of a weird look and he said, this is the guy we're inviting. <laughs> you know, he's talking to me about <laughs> Phil Collins, but he understood what I meant in that. He created these expect expectations in the West that since he went to uh, ophthalmology school in, in London, uh, he was known to be a computer nerd. He liked the Western, you know, the music of the West sure. and, the, and the gadgets and toys of the West, uh, that he would be a pro-Western. Phil Collins or Phil Collins Genesis? Phil Collins, both. Okay. Yeah, I like Genesis better. Also a big San Antonio yeah, connection the there. Yeah, yeah kind of okay. weird there, though. Yeah. yeah. But he's helped. He's he helped. gave he's, it away. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's donating all this stuff. But... Uh, um, but anyway, that, that's created this image in the West, uh, that was just, uh, untenable. It really was unattainable because people in the West forgot that, uh, he only spent a couple of years in London, spent the rest of his life in Syria. 
you know, he was a child of the Arab-Israeli conflict. He was a child of the superpower Cold War. He was a child of the tumult in Lebanon. And most of all, he was a child of Hafez al-Assad. So these were the primary influences on his life and, and the primary, the things that provided the context and prism through which he saw the world. And I guess my question is, what is the West's, so the West can have an image, that's fine, but what is sort of their take on it? Is it, this will be an ally for us, we will be able to get a foothold, or what is sort of the next take on why that matters to the West? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I was yeah. opening uh, my Diet Coke. It's okay, there's a San Antonio specials, and we're supporting local right oh, now. Oh, very good, excellent. Yeah. So could you repeat that? Yeah. I'm sorry, I wasn't so listening to you. When you said again. there was this sort of belief <laughs> that in the that his come to power, and he has connections with the West, was going to be good for the West, what did that mean diplomatically? Did people think he would be an ally for yes. Western yeah, forces it, or what? Well, they thought that uh, he would uh, continue to pursue peace with, with Israel, as his father began to do toward the end of his life, uh, that he might uh, reduce uh, Iran's presence and Hezbollah's presence in, uh, in Syria. All of these things he was willing to do. Uh, he himself engaged in secret talks with the Israelis. Uh, I had talks with him uh, on several occasions about reducing the Iranian footprint and Hezbollah, and those were things he was willing to consider for a price. You know, you get me the Golan Heights, which is the epicenter of, of, a, of an Israeli-Syrian peace treaty. Uh, you know, Israel took the Golan Heights in the 67 war, and that's become the be-all and end-all for Syrian foreign policy at that time was to get the Golan Heights back. And so he's not going to do all these things for free. This is, he's transactional in his own sure. way. And so, um, uh, but he was willing to consider all these things. But I think the, the uh, especially after 9-11, he was on the wrong side of the fence in, in terms of the Bush administration uh, said, basically, you have to be on our side of the fence. You know, in other words, we're not going to give you anything to uh, get rid of your connection with Hezbollah. You have to get rid of Hezbollah before we give you anything. Okay. And he's saying, no, that's not how it works. You know, that's not how my traditional relationship with the United States has been under myself or my father. And in the, in the sense that they were able to play both sides of the fence, they were able to, to, uh, um, to cooperate with the United States on occasions, such as in the 1990-91 uh, Gulf crisis and war when the Syria sent troops on the side of the U.S. Uh, Is that just because everybody U.S. hated Saddam Hussein? Well, yeah, um, partly. I mean, uh, it was crazy how everybody came to that, bat that. That was partly it, but most um, people don't do these things uh, unless it's for their own specific interests. For Syria yeah. at the time, it was the end of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was falling apart. They weren't going to get much economic and, and military support from the Soviet, Unions, from the Soviet Union in the future. Uh, we need to start amending uh, sure. our relations with the West or amending our relations with the West. And uh, what better way to do this? This has provided us with an opportunity to do that. So we'll send a few hundred troops. They didn't fight or anything, but it's symbolic. And it reoriented Syria uh, in a, not a pro-Western direction, but you know, in, in a position where it could cooperate more with the West and deal with Israel. A good start, yeah. Um, because this is my podcast, I'll do whatever I want. I want to sure. ask you a question. So in the 67 war, Israel also took the Suez Canal and then... Well, no, it took the Sinai Peninsula, and by taking the Sinai Peninsula, it, it closed the Suez Canal. It didn't take the Suez Canal, but because they, they were on one side... It. They didn't control it. Oh. They, they were on one side, the Egyptians were on the other, but it was closed. Okay. You know, so in effect... Israel controlled it by closing. But that was a big negotiation point. They gave that back to Egypt, yeah, and in, Egypt had to agree. In the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty of 1979, uh, Israel agreed to a phased withdrawal of the Sinai Peninsula, which was very important to, to uh, uh, Egypt because they could reopen the Suez Canal, which is, with their tolls, is a very important uh, economic uh, benefit to, to Egypt. The oil fields in Egypt, they're not an insignificant oil producer, are astride the ah. Sinai Peninsula on or just offshore. Uh, Israel had those for a while, um, and uh, and just you, you know a peace with with Israel would uh, allow uh, Egypt to uh, redirect uh, uh, government funds toward the military, toward you know the economy, which they direly needed. Was there any similar negotiations with Syria for the Golan Heights at that point? Yeah, well, uh, not at that point. I mean, I mean, well, not in 1979. This it started uh, for uh, for real. Uh, in uh, after the Gulf crisis and war, and okay. that's what Syria kind of got from this. And in is, the meantime, was just sort of a stalemate. Pretty much, okay. pretty much. I mean, there there were some negotiations in terms of a disengagement agreement following the 1973 Arab-Israeli war that uh, Kissinger in, engaged in his famous shuttle diplomacy between Assad and, and uh, the United States and Israel. Uh, but that was mostly just disengagement. It wasn't about a return of the Golan Heights. Okay.
Um, okay. So we got, you've met Assad now you're working on your book in 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, how is your relationship with Assad now? It's been through a number of things. Um, in, uh, when the civil war broke out in 2011, uh, when the uprising uh, broke out in March 2011, uh, we were actually in touch, and I had some recommendations for him on, on what to do. Uh, I wrote a letter to him through an intermediary, and I never knew he read it until I, I went to Syria uh, during the war and talked to some of his associates, and he said, oh, yeah, he read the letter. In fact, it was a, major, it was a primary item of discussion at a cabinet-level meeting. Hmm. So that made me feel good and bad, but uh, uh, that they were willing to discuss some of the... Um, concessions I recommended he make to, to ward off civil war. Now concessions you know, among who, I mean, you're from, from the government, from him and from him, particularly term limits, you know, set a term limit and set a real election, you unsupervised uh, and move on. Now, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if that would have worked. It, I, it couldn't have done worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause was this it, just a popular uprising at this point? It was point, a popular was uprising it? that okay. turned into a full fledged civil war, sure. especially when outside powers became involved uh, through. And actually, no, I didn't know if these were travel issues or no, no, th just these a, were economic issues. It was there. It Arab was Spring really almost exactly. It was okay. socioeconomic. In fact, that's one of the things uh, the Arab spring was slow to get to Syria because, uh, because of the history of what the Syrian government does to, those sure. who protest. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, the Syrian people having seen what happened in, in Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and Yemen before them with, with governments falling, uh, the barrier of fear was broken. Both the opposition and the government, when I was interviewing them uh, during the Civil War, agreed that without the Arab Spring, this wouldn't have happened. Uh. Uh, what people didn't know and what people wrongly assumed is that uh, Bashar al-Assad would... Uh, would fall easily, and that's not the case. And and I was saying at the time that you need to talk to Bashar al-Assad because he's going to be there for a while. He's not going to fall. It's not going to be very easy. His outside support, i.e. Russia and Iran, want him to stay in power much more than United States, Saudi Arabia, Europe want him to fall. They're willing to commit you know, uh, many more resources, and they did. And in fact, that's what uh, Barack Obama uh, basically said to a National Security Council meeting, and a good friend of mine was was in that meeting, uh, where you know they were saying we need to we need to support the opposition we need to assert ourselves more and, and basically Obama said can any of you tell me that if we do that that the Russians and the Iranians won't do more because it's more important to them Syria is much more important to them than it is to us sure uh, plus the Obama administration was negotiating with Iran for the nuclear deal at the time so they didn't really want to do much uh, in Syria that might uh, upset Iran and and scuttle the secret negotiations toward the nuclear right. deal, which was the signature foreign policy, at least in the Middle East, for Obama at the time. So um, so how did it go from he was considering your, I assume, very diplomatic, reasonable approach to getting out of this problem to barrel bombs dropped over cities? Uh, necessity. Uh, expediency. You know, in a corner. He, yeah. I mean, it was, it was an existential fight. And, you know, his sect, the Alawites, about 10-13% of the population, it's a schism of, of 12 or Shiite Islam, um, you know, they worked very hard. They were, for centuries and centuries, the downtrodden, the, the repressed, uh, without any opportunity for upward social mobility in, in Syria. And a, and a strange set of circumstances occurred in the 20th century where they were well-placed in the military. Uh, and so they, they finally came to power in the early 60s. And so they're going to do everything they can to keep power. And especially when the opposition became much more jihadist, who, you know, was almost a religious ruling to kill Alawites, if not Shiites in general. Huh. You know, uh, I, I had some opposition jihadists who I interviewed in northern Syria during the civil war. And they were saying, we hate to confront Alawite battalions because we know they'll fight to the death because they know we're going to kill them all. Hmm. And uh, where the, whereas others, Sunnis and some other, you know, uh, non-Alawite opposition uh, militias or groups, uh, they'll surrender. But these guys will fight to death because they know we're going to How fall. would they know they were Alawites? Uh, they just know. Okay. Yeah, they just know. I mean, they, they know who makes up. These type of things are known. In, certain in battalions Syria. were... Certain battalions that come from certain cities, uh, wear certain insignia and stuff okay. like that. Uh, they know these things or suspect these things. And plus, when they see that they're fighting to the death, these guys must be Alawite. Sure. You know, so... Um, and I so, don't want to be dumb American and saying, what is... Russia and Iran's main reason to ally with Syria other than oil? I mean, what is the connection there? Well, it, it, it's not oil, in fact. It's, um, 
uh, with Iran, it's maintaining its influence in the heartland of the Middle East because Syria is the conduit to Hezbollah, the party of God in Lebanon, uh, which extends Iranian influence all the way to the Israeli border. Um, in addition, it gives Iran some strategic depth. For Russia, it's uh, an avenue through which to recreate its influence in the Middle East, which it lost you know, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and they've done that. They've done that, and they've shown that they've been a reliable ally. They've uh, they've uh, expanded their naval base in Tartus in Syria and built a, a uh, air base just outside of Latakia in northwestern uh, Syria. And so they're entrenched now in, in Syria. And, uh, and through that, they've, be, they've become the primary uh, arbiter of political power in Syria in terms of a political settlement. And because of that, they've become uh, a uh, diplomatic force in the Middle East, which they weren't before this time. Hezbollah originate in Syria? Uh, no, no, it's, it's Lebanese. It's okay. Lebanese, yeah. And uh, uh, But uh, an alliance between Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria has allowed both Iran and Syria to extend their influence in Lebanon, which is very important for Syria, for geostrategic reasons, for economic reasons, et cetera. Um, the, uh, getting back, and we started all this because of, you asked me, what does Assad think of our, relation, our relationship now? And it, it's, it's mending, because at the beginning of the, the Civil War, I, I got into, I wrote in this letter and everything, but I, I was pretty critical of his actions. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times uh, really criticizing his first speech uh, that he made to the nation on March 30th, 2011. I called it pathetic um, and suggested some of these moves that obviously he did not uh, adopt. Um, and then I, uh, a book I, I wrote uh, that was published in 2013 by Yale University Press again. It was called The Fall of the House of Assad. It was supposed to have a question mark at the end. They don't like question marks, so they took it off. But that obviously that name didn't endear. Yeah. In fact, they told me I, I heard from uh, from people who met with Assad that he was very upset about that. I said, "Did he read it? Because if you read it, the I, I, I paint out these scenarios at the end, and I say the most likely scenario is Assad surviving, and so you're going to have to deal with him and negotiate with him. So if he read it, he probably like it more than than uh, he would otherwise. It's it's mending now." Um, because uh, of the situation series, they're in economic dire straits. Uh, uh, I, I have shown that, you know, I tried to tell them that, you know, I, I have access in Washington and Brussels and Moscow and, the, and London and these places because I criticize you. If I was an apologist, they wouldn't take me in, you know. Uh, but I, I don't go over, I don't go overboard. I'm not calling for the continued overthrow of the regime. I recognize the realities. You won. You're, you're, you're staying in power. We have to right. deal with you whether you like it or not. We have to deal with you. So that's my message. So you have to deal with that uh, if you, if you uh, want to really have access through people to, uh, to the powers that be in Washington and, and the UN and, and elsewhere. And, um, you know, the, the, the extent of his uh, disappointment, I guess, I'll just say, in me, uh, was, a, I guess, about two, three years ago. I was in London. I was meeting an associate uh, who, who meets with him often. Um, and he had arranged a meeting between myself and uh, Bashar al-Assad's father-in-law, who's very powerful uh, in Syria. Really great guy. I met, I met him years ago. He's a world-renowned cardiologist who's, mm. who's lived in London for decades. Great guy. Um, and so we were supposed to all three meet for dinner, and we, we arrived, and my contact arrived, and he said, uh, well, the, the, the doctor is not going to be able to, to make it. And I go, why? Well, he got a call from, from uh, Damascus, uh, to not have dinner with you. I guess, oh, Damascus, was it the Mohabbat, the intelligence? Oh, no, no. It was, you know who, <laughs> the boss. And so that told me it was very personal. And it also told me that I, I think he thought our relationship was, was much more than what I thought it was. You know, I, I, I considered him a friend. I, I liked him. Um... I think he thinks he's doing everything he's doing for the well-being of the country, no matter how warped other people may think that sure. is. From his prison, from his uh, vantage point, he thinks he's saved the country and saved a way of life from the jihadists. And, you know, uh, there's some a, a kernel of truth to that. Um, but it, it, it's improved of late, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it will continue to improve. So what is your continued involvement? Because I know probably once we became friends, you were doing diplomatic work for the UN. Are you doing anything anymore in sort of the international diplomacy yes. world? Okay. 
Um, working with the UN, working with Washington. Uh, work, I work a lot with the Carter Center in Atlanta and through them involved in a number of initiatives. And, and all of it is, is dealing with some aspect of conflict resolution, uh, political settlement, uh, governance issues, political reform, stuff like that. Um, and are you still writing? Yes. What are you writing now? Uh, right now I'm working on a book for Oxford University Press called, uh, um, tentatively called, The History of the Middle East from the Prophet Muhammad to the Present. So a short span of time. Sure. You know, yeah. It's only 1,400 years or so. A 70-volume set. 70-volume set. No, it's not going to be that long. It's going to be one that uh, is accessible to the general reader, probably about 300, 350 pages long. Okay. So not that bad. Uh, and Will I get an invite to your uh, book reading? Publication yeah. uh, uh-huh. party? Sure, if you don't make fun of me like yeah. you did last time. It was something out of a movie, honestly. I, I was not expecting that. Why? What do you, why? I mean, what, you, what? you opened a book and you started reading, and it, I think you literally said recently at a cocktail party, and I thought I, thought I was in a movie. Yeah. I thought I was seeing a caricature of a moment in life, but it was a real moment in it, life. It was a real moment in yeah. life, and I don't know whether to take that in a positive or negative way. But uh, well, if it's coming from me, you know, it's a negative way. Yeah. Sure, so sure. The next thing I want to talk to you about. I think a I think bit. you left right after that, right? When I went, I to, stayed long enough to say hello you, to you. Well, you stayed long enough to get some food and drink and free drink. I didn't eat any of that food. I was going to have to walk really up to the food. front to get the food. <laughs> I was staying in the back. Fine. Um, the next thing I kind of want to talk to you about is. You have some experience and, and decades of experience, really, in, I guess, regional stability issues mm-hmm. and regional instability issues. How do you see what's become a global pandemic of this coronavirus? How do you see it affecting regional stability in the Middle East or or not at all? I mean, do you think this is going to have ripple effects into the peace process or lack thereof? Set it back, set it forward. I mean, people are talking about here one of the great effects might be this at least slight drop in partisan sort of war. Do you see any changes in the Middle East or well, regional stability over we, this? We, we hope so. I mean, you know, crises like this can go one or two directions. You know, it could lead toward uh, uh, more unity or it could split people apart based on what's happened. I've seen both so far uh, in the United States. I, I think what this is doing internationally is just basically putting everything on hold. I mean, just everyone's focusing on this and not focusing on a number of other things, which if, you're fo- if, it, if it's war that you're focusing on, it's a good thing that that's on hold. Sure. If it's a peace process you're focusing on and you were on the precipice of attaining it and all of a sudden it's on hold, then that's not a good thing. So I think it depends on, on the specific situation, uh, where you are. Uh, I mean, yeah, we hope to all sing Kumbaya after this and, and you know, that'll bring the world together. Um, on the other hand, you know, a lot of people are going to be saying this is the effects of uh, one of the primary effects of globalization. And so it could very well lead to a more isolationist period where, you know, uh, people are, are not traveling as, as much or don't want to integrate as much with other cultures because this is what can happen. Uh, when I think that's, that's obviously, from my point of view, the wrong conclusion. Uh, but I think a lot of people are going to react in that fashion. I hope not. Uh, I mean, we see this already with, you know, people calling this the China virus and, and so forth, which is which is unfortunate, uh, much like we call it the Spanish flu, you know, back in 1918. This started in Kansas. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we find scapegoats and, and uh, everyone is to blame other than, than us. And uh, that happens all over the world. And if that's the case, then, then this could be problematic toward uh, uh, international relations, international diplomacy. Uh, but you know, I, I'm a I'm a glass half full person. I have to be because I focus on the Middle East. If if I was a half empty type person, I, I would have killed myself a long time ago. But um, uh, I tend to look at the better parts of humanity. Uh, you know, I, I believe in an international humanism that most people are good, and as we were talking about earlier, people are just people. They you know, the bottom line is that they want uh, to live safely and and be able to get uh, bread and food and you know, put their children to bed without bombs going off and under a, a shelter and, and, uh, put them in school and stuff like that. Um, and so I hope that that overwhelming groundswell, uh, can, can outlast and, uh, overwhelm the divisive political tendencies of, of leaderships, uh, around the world. Uh, because, you know, Yes, globalization in many ways 
you know, is at the root of the rapidity of the transfer of this, of this virus, but, uh, but globalization will help solve the issue too. Uh, and that's what I hope in the end, when this is resolved, people will, will take a snapshot of that rather than take a snapshot of what caused it. Is that happening? I mean, is there a diplomatic group effort right now to fix this? Because you heard early on that we were rejecting help from other countries and other countries were rejecting our asks mm -hmm. for science. I mean, are, are you hearing or seeing or have any understanding as to whether or not those barriers are coming down and people are starting to I, take I, this I, serious? I, I, I've come to the – I used to be a uh, – top-down type person. I still am to a certain degree in terms of affecting real change in the world, you know, the leaderships basically. But I, I've come to realize in a practical way uh, that it's more bottom-up. Uh, and that takes longer, but it's more sustainable, I think. And that's one of the reasons why, as you know, I've gotten involved in local politics uh, much more so than I have in the past. And you know, in the past, I didn't even know when the mayoral election was, but now I'm heavily involved and, and uh, uh, back, you know, certain people. And, uh, you know, as you know, I hold these brainstorming sessions for certain politicians and, and to help them come up with some good ideas and so forth, because I think it's at this local level, uh, where you can get this cross-cultural, cross-political, uh, interdisciplinary type of cooperation in order to get things done. Again, if you have good leadership, I think we have good leadership uh, in, in San Antonio right now in order to affect this. And then you piece these little things together, uh, these responses in cities and towns and states, uh, and, and it will, from the bottom up, eventually, uh, it will, it will uh, uh, compel or obligate uh, the leaders uh, to go along rather than the other way around. Sure. Especially at this current time, because I think leadership from Washington is lacking, and leadership from a lot of areas in the world is is, is lacking uh, in response to this. In, it, in situations like this, are, is it going to be those NGOs that are sort of the bottom-up sort of processing and Absolutely. fermenting I mean, the, the These are the guys, God bless all of them. I mean, these are the guys that, you know, uh, and gals, that, that put themselves out uh, on the front lines constantly. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, you know, I, I was in Syria during the war and, you know, bombs going off and all this sort of stuff. And and because I thought it was the right thing to do to try to uh, find ways toward conflict resolution. And, you know, I, I do that episodically. You have thousands and thousands of these people doing this on a daily basis, putting them, their lives at risk. And, you know, they are the, uh, you know, they are the sentinels. Uh, and, and we need to uh, recognize that. Uh, and I think, you know, in a way, we're going to see that. We're going to see tremendous sacrifice and tremendous energy and focus uh, in dealing with this problem, it will be resolved. I mean, we're going to beat this this disease. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. It's just a matter of when. And, uh, and at what cost. And at what cost. Um, so, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, we can, we can recognize uh, all of these efforts from the small to the big that get this done. And we see that, that this crosses all sorts of boundaries that, that we have erected or have preconceived notions of. Uh, that is my hope. You know, it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Right. It, it could go in the opposite direction easily. Um, but that is, that is my hope because that's the only way we're going to deal with this in a, in a cooperative, uh, globally uh, harmonious way, uh, you know, into the future. And, uh, and that goes from the local level to the national level to the international level. And, um, you know, that, uh, uh, I, I think we have it in us. I, I really do believe we have it in us. Um, I just wish we had better leadership uh, at, at the national level, at the international level, uh, to get this done. And uh, But if it doesn't come from that direction, let's do it from the bottom up. It'll get done one way or another. Yeah. Uh, uh, first, I want to talk to you a little bit about San Antonio since you touched mm -hmm. on it, but I also want to point out how smart I am because I actually wrote down how this affects isolationism from a global perspective. And, and you touched on it, but I just wanted to brag about how no, I, think I sort of knew I, I where think, you were no, going. No, 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 no. I think you wrote that down after I, I talked about it. I saw you scribbling. In typing? I'm not going to give you credit. In type. In typing? Yeah. Uh -huh. I, don't, I don't see that at all. Well, I, I mean, I need to put my glasses on. You know, on. all I could think of is I think of the not in my backyard guys, and you just can't do that anymore because – this virus started in industrial China that right. people think is somebody else's backyard. And right. well, now it is in our backyard and it kind of mm -hmm. ends that fallacy of we're all separate. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me about your involvement with San Antonio. And I know you've been involved with the mayor's office from a perspective of 
we should be a more international city. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've you've discussed with him sort of our ability to pivot and be more involved from sort of a larger perspective. What sure. do you think San Antonio's future is in terms of being less of a region? I mean, we're a regional city in Texas. Yeah. How do we become a more global, globally significant city? I think it's a mindset. Uh, you know, this is one of the subjects I've discussed with the mayor, uh, particularly in some of these brainstorming sessions uh, we, we have. And he has a very much uh, internationalist uh, point of view and very much wants to, uh, to increase the or, or enlarge the international footprint uh, in San Antonio. But, you know, you, you talk to one San Antonian and they'll say, yeah, yeah, we, definitely. We want more, you know, foreign investment in here. We want more uh, foreign companies coming in and from all over the world. And and so forth. Then you talk to an, another one uh, that will say, you know, I like it the way it is. I like having this, you know, big city but small town atmosphere. Yeah. We don't really want to change that. And I can see, you know, that's one of the attractions to me. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I love it here. And do we want it to become Houston? You know, and uh, I think you just captured the push and pull. Of San uh, yeah, I just, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is San Antonio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're on the precipice of the next big thing and holding back because right. eh, we like what we got. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's an attitude. And, and I think the growing the international footprint is inevitable. Uh, it has to be. Uh, that's just the way things are going. Uh, we don't necessarily have to lose a lot of the, the local flavor and intimacy that, that we enjoy. There are cities that, that have successfully bridged those two things, and I think we can uh, do that successfully with, with good leadership. Um, I mean, one of the things that a lot of people point to, one of the things I've been you know, uh, discussing with people here in town is, is of course, uh, uh, air travel. Uh, to San Antonio and increasing the, the, the number of direct flights to uh, not only cities in the U.S., but to yeah. Europe. It's a big problem here. It's a huge problem. And unfortunately, we're losing that to Austin and, and, and so forth. And I think we missed a huge opportunity. When I first moved here, there were serious discussions about building a regional airport you know, on I-35 between, yeah. you know, kind of like a Dallas-Fort Worth yeah. uh, type of airport uh, between Austin and, and San Antonio. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, if we had started then, it may actually be done by now, and it would be a behemoth. It sure, would, it, absolutely, it would be a hub for, for some major airline, and and have all international flights all over the place. Instead, we have, you know, we have two regional ones. Uh, we have Austin, which uh, uh, because it's a state capital, because of the technological sector and the, and the, uh, uh, and the. Like the 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 uh, the money that is there, the research university, the research university, yeah. yeah that uh, you know they, they're getting the the lion's uh, share of of uh, international flights, and and uh, uh, although they're not a hub for anybody either, but they're getting the lion's share of international flights, and and so this this is this is difficult, and and also the, the just the transportation issue, the question of of poverty uh, in this city, education, education is really at the core, the foundation improving education at all levels uh, in this city. You know, I, I mean, Trinity is, is you know, of course, it, it's, it's one world of the, class, world class, one of the premier institutions. But it, it, it's not, it, it's a small private liberal arts uh, college. It's not going to be a UT that, that helps lift and, and provide the foundation for the growth of the city. That sure. has to be UTSA. And I think it's, it's, it's doing some things in, in that regard. Uh, but, uh, I mean, do you think cybersecurity is going to be, I mean, it already is our thing, but do you think yeah. it's going to be what, what uh, will it, springboard it, us? Every, I mean, everyone has to find their value, uh, added. Everyone has to find their comparative advantage. And it seems that that's with the military presence here. Uh, we have an NSA office here. Uh, you know, we, we, in data point, I mean, one of my very, very good friends is a guy that, uh, uh, I'll mention his name, David Monroe who invented the, the, the camera phone and he worked in data point and, and he works uh, in all sorts of uh, areas, uh, not necessarily cybersecurity, but yeah, that too. Um, and um, and so you know we have we have the brain power here. Uh, we need the political will. Uh, we need education from the ground up uh, that can feed into the economic system here, um, which uh, I don't think has has been done uh, as well. We're, we're beginning to get there. You know, moving some of these elements from UTSA and Texas A&M, you know, into downtown, uh, focusing on certain areas that create uh, value added to what we want to do uh, as a city. Do you think there's a roadblocks in the way in the city or more just we need to focus and get, you know, moving in the right direction? Well, I mean, one of the biggest roadblocks is parochialism, uh, you know, from the school level to the political level. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was working on, not with the mayor, uh, but, 
we apprised him of it, uh, I put together a, uh, my own little blue ribbon group of, of, sorry, did you get the invitation? Yeah, I must have been sorry, lost in the mail. Sorry. Even you were in the, the, what, what, the red ribbon? The I red mean, ribbon I've seen group. who you've chose over me, so I so feel you're, like you're, your choice really, is pretty really? unique, yeah, honestly. Yeah, but yeah, they were willing yeah. to pay for dinner, so, you know. Well, that, that probably <laughs> I mean, is that, the, that's the, that's the, the requirement. Yeah. That's the uh-huh. requirement. No, anyway, <laughs> um, these are community leaders, business leaders, academics. Uh, we were talking about uh, governance in San Antonio. And you know, one of the things that we were recommending is that you have a, a strong mayor council type of governance system, which will require a referendum. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can only do one of these things every two years or so. These Because we're unique, unique in yeah, our city we're, structure. Yeah, we're a council manager, yeah. you know, form of government, uh, which most big cities are, are strong mayor council mm-hmm. form of government. Where the mayor has has more power. It's kind of us in Phoenix or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Charlotte, I think, is another yeah. one or something like that. And so it's um, and there, there's a history behind that, you know, uh, particularly in the Southwest. I assume that's not a good history. It has to do with water and racism. Yeah, that's um, my guess. Yeah, minus uh, the water. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, yeah, I think we need to go in in that direction. Uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, the mayors will be you know in a strong mayor council. Uh, situation, political system, they'll be vetted much more than they are so today. Uh, and uh, they'll have the powers, if we elect a good one, uh, to uh, to do the things necessary to lift this uh, city uh, in the right direction yeah. and toward, you know, the uh, further into the 21st century, particularly in terms of transportation, education, uh, you know, dealing with uh, poverty and uh, equity and all of these things. So. I, I asked, I should have asked you this. What, what do you think is the one thing San Antonio is lacking that they really need to step up on? Oh boy. Guest yesterday said we really need better transportation. Uh, that's, that was the top of my, yeah, that was the top of my uh, head, uh, transportation. Yeah. And I think we've, and, and that goes from air travel to, to, uh, 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 city local traffic and via and all that sort of yeah. stuff. I think we've really dropped the ball. We've really dropped the ball. Uh, the mayor is trying to rectify that by getting more money toward the toward this new transportation plan. He has or redirect more money toward this transportation plan he has. But uh, I, I just think we really dropped the ball long ago on this uh, uh, because of the parochial nature of the city, because of the council manager form of mm-hmm. government, which, you know, again, is something of a – it doesn't prohibit, but it makes it much more difficult to – to cull together the, the political capital and political critical mass to, to move something forward. I mean, it's got to be less responsive to the electorate. It is. I mean, yeah. You're, yeah. you're on well, a salary. You're not getting voted out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, uh, that would be my number one thing off the top of my head. All right. We've, we've almost gone an hour, so I'm about to wrap up. David, I've asked you this before, and you always give me some dumb response. So I'm going to ask you. Some people really want to know, Kind of what is a good primer on the Middle East? I told you what I read, and you made fun of me for it. What did you read? What did you just Friedman's first book. Oh, God. Yeah, that was really That's stupid. No wonder I said it's dumb. The first I mean, book I mean, was you, good. You have no idea what good. you're doing. No, it isn't. Well, I was 19. Yeah, well, and then I asked you. We do stupid you, things when 19. I, knew, I used to see when I was reading at 19. What, what is a good starter? So obviously, your book, History Since Muhammad, is not even out yet. And even if it was out, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be too erudite. It, it's in big letters. I have pictures, okay. so you'll be able to. You'll, audio cartoons, version, audio version. Oh, do know, you maybe. read your own audio versions? No, I do not. Oh, I do not. Can I do one? Sure. Okay. You have a good radio voice. You um, know. you're not getting any money for it. But what's a good like like a good prime? You're getting as much money for that as I am getting for this appearance. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Two beers. <laughs> Two beers. That's right. <laughs> what is a good primer for people who want to know more about the Middle East and sort of cut through the crap that we see on the news about? this long storied conflict. There's uh, there are a couple of books. Uh, uh, one by James Gelvin, who's a good friend of mine. We were at uh, Harvard together and he wrote a book on the modern Middle East. And I think that's really good uh, on the Arab Israeli conflict. I'm going to be immodest and just say my own book, uh, yeah. the uh, Arab Israeli conflict, a history by Oxford university press. You know, it goes over the whole history going back to the you know, 1700s. Uh, of the uh, you know precursors of the Arab-Israeli conflict yeah. to, to the present, and uh, the second edition just came out, um, and, th- and that's the book from which I read the, about the cocktail party. So <laughs> you know that was for the you know, the audience were really good. Can't on wait. That. Yeah, you can't wait. Right? <laughs> um, and then uh, the, uh, books on Islam, I would go to uh, John Esposito, 
who's head of the used to be head of the Christian Muslim Center uh, at Georgetown University, and uh, he's written a number of books for the general audience on Islam and and uh, Islamism and Islamic fundamentalism, things like that. And he's very balanced and very knowledgeable. Okay, but one from our very own San Antonio, David Lesh. At least, yeah. Um, they can. Do you want me to go over the others? Well, you've got about fifteen books listed on your. Actually, your, I have sixteen. Thank you. On your Trinity page. I don't know. Is that my Trinity? That's the. That's I think your Trinity page says fifteen, so you might want to update. I'm going to update that. Yeah, yeah you yeah. need to. Okay, sorry. All right, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, brother. Thank Love you for being, being here. your friend. Um, next time I want to get you on. There's going to be a conflict over there at some point in the next nine months that we'll have you back on to talk about specifically because I really I, I like this stuff. I think it's nerdy and heady and yeah, it's interesting. Well, to in, me. in that sense, I hope you do not have me on, which means there won't be a conflict. But <laughs> I'm always here. Okay, um, that does it for this episode. I'm ending with my wish list of people I want on. It still continues to be Coach Pop, Robert Rivard, and Jackie Earl Haley. If you know them, help us. Uh, Join us next episode. I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to be somebody good. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.